The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Before we get to Luke 14, I just have a question. This is kind of a question for parents or a statement. Those of you with, who are parents, particularly of young children, or maybe your kids are grown up now and jog your memory and see if this sounds familiar. Do you ever were posed with this question from your young children. Mommy, what is heaven like? Maybe you recently received that from one of your children. Mommy, what is heaven like? Or Daddy, what is heaven like? Sounds simple, doesn't it? It's a challenge to answer, actually. When you look at all of Scripture, there's actually not a whole lot of information on the details of what heaven is like. And another complicating factor in describing what heaven is like, it's which heaven are you talking about? The heaven right now where God resides and has lived for all eternity even before creation? That's where God lives in the heavens. It's his dwelling place, which would be different than the heavens that he created. So it's, it's not an easy question to answer. Mommy, what is heaven like? But we know that when young children are asking, what is heaven like? We know that they're talking about the created heavens, the heavens that people go after they leave this life when they die. It's a natural question. Children ask that question all the time. You probably asked that question when you were younger. Or maybe as an adult, you are asking it currently. Maybe you still wonder. Because after all, not a whole lot of information is given in the Bible on the details of heaven, but going back to that complex issue of what is heaven like, is it which heaven are you talking about? Because there's also the heaven where when you die and breathe your last in this life, which will be true of all of us, lest Jesus return before them. As soon as you breathe your last, your soul leaves your body and goes, and if you're a Christian, you go to heaven. So the question is, what is that like? That heaven. But that's different than the final heaven. Because when you die right now, in this life, before Jesus returns, the heaven you go to as a believer is not God's ideal heaven for humanity. There's a greater heaven still coming. It's yet future. And that comes at the end of the age with the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you think about heaven, it's a complicated matter. Which heaven are you talking about? So, to answer the question, Mommy, what is heaven like? So, here's a little challenge for you, parents, especially parents of young children. If you haven't fielded this question yet, I'm giving you the answer ahead of time from God's point of view. If you could just uh, give one answer in one sentence and say, Heaven is like blank, and I'm only giving you one option, one answer, to give the best biblical answer, what would you say? Maybe you want to write it down right now. Heaven is like, and if you could just say one thing, what would you put? Write it down or answer it in your head. And now I'm going to give you the correct answer. You ready? According to the Bible, according to Pastor Cliff. You might disagree with me, but I have evidence from the Bible and from Jesus. But I would say the best answer that explains it to a young child answering what they're really looking for is that heaven is like a grand banquet. Now, maybe you've answered that. Maybe your children are older now, and they're all out of the house, or they're married, and they have their own children, and you're a Christian parent thinking, man, I never said that. I didn't know that answer. I blew it. No, you didn't. You can say it to your grandchildren now, when they ask you, if your kids are grown up. It's not the only answer, but I think is one of the most graphic, concrete, fullest answers that you could give that immediately answers and informs the imagination of a child that's actually consistent with Scripture and particularly what Jesus said about heaven. Actually, the most detail, the most information in Scripture that describes heaven of what it's going to look like at the end of the age of that physical heaven, actually, most information describes it as a banquet, banquet in the presence of God. So I want you to just, before we go to Luke 14, I do want you to go back to the Old Testament So you can see this mindset and go back to Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah 25, Isaiah written 700 years or so 
uh, before Christ was born. Isaiah was a prophet of God, preached for several decades. Uh, priest wrote down one of the longest books in the entire Bible. You're, it's right in the middle of your English Bible, about 66 chapters long in your English Bible, filled with prophecies and all kinds of historical information. Some of those prophecies were fulfilled in uh, Isaiah's day, 700 B.C. Some were fulfilled at the first coming of Christ 2,000 years ago. Many of the prophecies Isaiah gave will not be fulfilled until the end of the age, still yet future, at the second coming of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. We look forward to many of these prophecies still. And many of these prophecies, they are graphic, they are detailed. They will be fulfilled just as literally as some of the prophecies that he said about the the Messiah the first time, that were fulfilled literally, that the Messiah would come, born of a woman, be a male child, Born from a virgin, from Israel. So many other amazing details that Isaiah gave. Literal prophecies, literally fulfilled. And here's a prophecy that he gives uh, about the end of the age. And and really, it's a description of what heaven is like. Now, I want you to keep in mind as we read just these few verses, Isaiah 25, 6 through 8, is imagine a Pharisee, a Sadducee, a scribe, a Jewish leader in the days of Jesus, who were the designated so-called experts and guardians of the Old Testament law, or just the Old Testament in its entirety, the Word of God. They were responsible for teaching the people the Word of God, the Old Testament, Old Testament truth. They professed to know it. They professed to be competent to teach it. They professed to believe in it. They professed to live by it. They professed to know the true and only God of the universe. His name was Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. This is what the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the scribes, the Jewish leaders, this is what they claimed. This is what they believed. If you were a Jew living in that day, you looked up to them. You called them rabbi. You respected them. You revered them. You feared them. You heard them teach on Saturday in synagogue. You trusted them. They had the insight of spiritual truth according to the word of God, supposedly. And these scholars of the Old Testament, they knew Isaiah. They knew it inside and out. They knew it backward. Maybe some of you Christians, you're reading Isaiah 25. You've been a Christian your whole life and you forgot about Isaiah 25. Maybe you've actually never read Isaiah 25 and you're a Christian and you've been Christian for a long time. That's not uncommon today. But for the Jews back then, 2,000 years ago, especially for the leaders of Israel. No, they didn't just read it. They knew it well. They taught on it. They probably had it memorized, and it was a part, it was a basic plank in their worldview of how they perceived life and the life to come. This is how they viewed heaven. They had a very literal view of heaven that would come in the future according to the Bible. It's not just spiritual. It's not just ethereal. It's not just invisible. It's not just, oh, when I die, I'm sitting and floating on a cloud. That is not the Old Testament Jewish understanding of heaven. It was very earthy, very physical. They just didn't understand that it was implemented incrementally over time, according to God's perfect will. But definitely, when they thought of heaven or the end of the age, or what happened when they die. If they were a believer, if they were a Jew, if they were part of the elect, God's covenant people, a Jewish person, a Pharisee, they believed that when they die, they were going to the banquet. They were going to the heavenly banquet. They were going to God's banquet. Why? Because it's in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. That's what God promised that as a reward for this life. Let's look at some of the details of the future heavenly banquet that is still coming because it hasn't come, it hasn't been fulfilled, nothing in history meets or fulfills the details of what is promised right here, of this future heavenly banquet. By the way, uh, chapter 24, 25, 26, and 27 of the book of Isaiah is all speaking about the end times, the end of the age, how world history is going to end. That is the context, that's how we know this is at the end of the age. And Isaiah keeps using a phrase starting in chapter 24, and then he uses it in 25 and 26 and 27 when he says, in that day, chapter 25, verse 9, in that day, the end of the age, when the Messiah comes, when all of world history is fulfilled by God, when literally Jesus' prayer in Matthew 6 is answered, when he said, pray this way, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The answer to that prayer happens right here at the end of the age. That was a specific prayer. 
concrete, graphic, literal. God's glory comes down to planet earth to reside with his people. In utter, glorious, perfect, sweet fellowship. What is heaven like? Heaven was like a grand, glorious, heavenly banquet with God. And Isaiah tells us some details about it. Verse 6, at the end of the age, in the future, on that day, the Lord, that's Yahweh. This is the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet. That sounds heavenly. You would expect nothing less, right? For something glorious, something heavenly, something we're expecting and waiting for in the presence of God. You would think it would be lavish, and that's the Hebrew word here. It's a very specific word used over 200 times in the Old Testament. and always has the same nuance. Lavish, says the New American Standard. A lavish banquet. He's describing what heaven is like at the end of the age when God brings it to planet earth. Yahweh of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for who? Is it just for the Jews? Is it just for the Jewish leadership? Is it just for Israel? No. It's for all peoples. This is universal. This is for everybody all over the earth. All believers of all ages get to come to this banquet. All peoples. Verse 7 says all peoples. At the end of verse 7 it says over all the nations. This isn't local. This isn't just Jerusalem. This didn't already happen. This is universal. This is everyone. Particularly believers who are going to the banquet of God. And by the way, you can't get into God's eternal banquet at the end of the age unless you have an invitation. Apparently some people are going to try to get in and they won't have an invitation. They won't get in. There's a door. There's a narrow door. His name is Jesus. That's how you get into the banquet. And if you don't know Jesus, you wouldn't want to go in anyway. Why? Because he's at the head of the table. He is the one that is honored at the glorious banquet. So the Yahweh of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet at the end of the age for all peoples on this mountain. That is Jerusalem. Zechariah clearly tells us in 13 and 14, Jesus, when he returns, he will land or reside on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a mountain itself. It's going to be the capital of planet Earth in the future. And this is where this glorious banquet is going to happen. This is where Matthew 6 is answered. When God brings the glories of heaven down to earth, and its headquarters are in Jerusalem on this mountain, verse 6. Again, verse 7, on this mountain. So here's this glorious banquet at the end of the age. For all peoples on this mountain in Jerusalem, Jesus is there, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow. By the way, this lavish banquet, what do you expect at a banquet? When you go and sit down, first and foremost, you expect good food. At least I do. And that's the first thing on the agenda right here. What's going to be at God's glorious banquet? Appealing to our physical nature. He, he made us physical beings. That's not evil inherently. God created us to eat, to drink, to enjoy Timothy tells us that that is all a gift from God. So the Lord prepares this lavish banquet for all the peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine. That, that's seasoned wine. You know what kind of wine that is? That's perfect wine. Anybody here that thinks they've ever had perfect wine, just so you know, you haven't. Unless you were in John chapter 2 when Jesus created it directly, you haven't had perfect wine yet, but you will hear if you're a believer. At this banquet. And the idea, it's lavish. It's extravagant. Th these words that are used to describe it are, God didn't hold anything back. He's just showering the grace of blessing upon his people at that time. Unlimited, if you will. But sinless as we partake of it because we'll be in heaven with the Lord, those of us who are believers, with no sin living in us, resurrected body. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, choice pieces, uh, fats, oils. That's literally what the Hebrew word means. Choice pieces is the same word in New American Standard as the word lavish. Lavish and choice is the same Hebrew word. And the idea is it's the best. Uh, like I said, mostly it refers to, the, to precious, rare, expensive, coveted, if you will, oils. Always used for a, a purpose of God, for the most part, in the Old Testament. 
So that's what is going to be at this banquet, this lavish banquet given by God that describes the end of the age of what heaven is like on earth and refined aged wine. Verse 7, and on this mountain, God himself, Yahweh and the Lord Jesus Christ will swallow up the covering which is over all the peoples and even the veil which is stretched over all the nations. He will swallow up death for all time. He will swallow up death for all time. That's eternal life. That is salvation. That's life after the grave. That's life after death. That's eternal life. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God, Yahweh, will wipe uh, tears away from all faces. That's the promise of Revelation, repeating this. And he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. You can count on it. Isn't that something to look forward to? That is heaven at the end of the age. Very specific. So now you can give maybe a more complete, physical, concrete, graphic illustration of what's true to the Bible in answering your children's questions or an unbeliever, what will heaven be like? Well, let me tell you the culmination of God's intent regarding heaven. It's going to look like this. It's going to be one grand, divine, glorious, lavish banquet in the presence of God. And God himself is the one hosting this eternal banquet. And you can only get there by special, formal invitation from the God of the universe. And you don't Get invited unless you know his son personally, the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, that was the understanding of the Jews. That was the understand. This was like second nature to them because they were biblically literate. The Greeks, pagans, they didn't think this way. They didn't know. They had crazy ideas. They invented ideas of what it was like in the afterlife. The most common pagan understanding of what happens after you die is you go away for a while and you come back reincarnated. That's what pagans believed. This idea of bodily resurrection at a glorious, lavish feast in the immediate presence of the creator of the universe made possible by way of a savior who's a God-man, that's divine revelation. No human being ever thought of that. You won't find that in any of the religions of the world or in their history. Resurrection. Humans couldn't have come up with that. Only God could tell us that. But, oh, that's important. Now now go to Esther. So you go from Isaiah, flip back a few books. Uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. So that was the heavenly banquet that is yet coming that's part of what heaven actually looks like on earth that we get to be a part of. Like I said, Revelation 19, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, is a banquet where he calls all of us. We get to be at his banquet. It's called the uh, Supper of the Lamb. That's what we're looking forward to. And it's on the earth. It's earthy. It's physical. We'll be in physical bodies. We'll be able to eat food. We will be perfect. Esther chapter 1. So that's a heavenly banquet. But here was a typical uh, Middle Eastern ancient banquet. This one happens to be thrown, this banquet, by a pagan king, but uh, other kings through these kind of, by invitation only, formal, exquisite, lavish banquets. Solomon, King David, no doubt, in his palace had his banquets that were thrown to people by invitation only. This was common. Uh, Esther chapter 1, now it took place in the days, so this is about 450, 500 B.C., took place in the days of King Ahasuerus, verse 2. He was a king. He was rich. He was a monarch. He sat on his royal throne. He had power. He had money. He had persuasion. He had protection from his army. He sat on his royal throne, verse 3. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet. He gave a banquet. It wasn't for everybody. It was for a select few. It was by invitation only. It was somewhat preferential because it was a banquet for only his princes, his attendants, his army officials, the who's who of his small circle that reigned in that day. And they got formal invitations and they came and they lapped it up and they loved it. And they felt honored and they were proud of the fact that they got invited to this kingly royal banquet by the king himself with personal invitations because no doubt there were plenty of people who weren't invited and didn't get to go and didn't get to indulge on all the lavish food and everything else that was provided for weeks on end for this select group of people at this kingly royal lavish banquet this was a real one this already happened 
But that wasn't the only banquet he threw. In verse 5, it says, When these days were completed and that banquet was over, then King Ahasuerus had another banquet. The king gave a banquet lasting seven days for all the people who were present at the citadel in Susa, from the greatest to the least, in the courts of the garden of the king's palace. So even this was, here's another formal banquet, lavish banquet, showing off the glories of his reign, his kingdom, his palace, all of his wealth putting it on a show. And again, this was a banquet by invitation only. It was a smaller crowd. It wasn't everybody in the entire kingdom. Couldn't accommodate everybody there. It says that they were just in the vicinity of that area, the immediate area. So there were many people who couldn't attend to this. Plus, he was limited by the space in terms of where they had this. It went on for a week long. And you can bet, for a week long, uh, they were living it up with all the wine and all the food and all the fat food and everything else. And A key to this is to prepare for something like this. A king like this putting on this size of a banquet 2,500 years ago is you didn't just go to Costco to get all your groceries for the next day, right? It's okay. We've got uh, 1,200 people coming, and we've got to provide enough meat for everybody, so we've got to corral up all the oxen and the cows and everything we can find, and then we have to kill them and all the birds and whatever else we're going to be eating, and pluck those and prepare those. And so we need about probably 2,000 servants to get it ready and all the vegetables as well to be prepared. So that's going to, we're probably going to need a good month and a half of preparation uh, for this ordeal. So that's how they prepared for a massive, rare, maybe one-time banquet of this size. These banquets did not happen very often. And that's why when you were invited, it was the pinnacle of social life and social experience. It may be that you would never experience this again in your life. For some people, they would never be invited to a banquet like this, ever. They didn't deserve it. They were the riffraff of society. They weren't high society, the highbrow people. Didn't have a name, didn't have a reputation, didn't have money. Those who hosted these banquets were very careful and selective in who they invited. And they usually invited certain people for a reason. It wasn't just to be nice or to be kind. Usually there was an ulterior motive to get something in return. This was very typical, especially of a pagan king like this guy. So that's what's going on here. So, this, so I just wanted to give you that background to what a, would be in the frame of reference for a Pharisee, a Sadducee, a Jew in Jesus' day, when Jesus starts speaking of an illustration of a grand, glorious, lavish banquet. Add to that, Jesus said in Matthew 23, not long after, it's actually about the same time in his ministry here, you can go to Luke 14 now. Uh, Luke 14, uh, we're actually looking at verses 1 through 24, we've already covered verses 1 through 6, the incident there. In Luke 14, this is the end of Jesus' ministry. It is Easter season in the ministry of Jesus Christ right here in the book of Luke. It's Easter next week for us. This is quite appropriate. It's Easter season. We saw in Luke 13, verse 22, that Jesus left Nazareth after about two plus years of ministry. Now he's going to go, he's heading down to Jerusalem, it says in verse 22 of 13. Jesus left Nazareth, his hometown, done preaching there, and now he was passing from one city and village to another, going down, going down south, back and forth, across Perea, across the Jordan, back over the Jordan, back over there, hitting all these villages that he's either never been to or hasn't been to in a long time so that he can get the word of the gospel of kingdom out to everyone. And that's what he's doing, and he's passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way. He is laser-focused on Jerusalem, on the cross, on crucifixion, on dying for sinners, on giving his life for those who might believe. And Jesus knew it had to happen at a certain time of the year. It happened to happen. It had to happen on feast day. It had to happen at the Passover. It had to happen at Passover when God commanded Israel to get an innocent lamb and slaughter it and kill it as a substitute for the sins of the people. That's when Jesus had to die. And he's going to be in perfect sync with the will of the Father. And so that's where he is. So he's walking down to Jerusalem. He's got his 12 apostles, including Judas the devil. He's got the women who love him with him. He's got his uh, team of 70 people that he's been training that are doing work for him along the way. And you've got other uh, curious spectators following him as well. 
And you also have the relentless pursuing, conniving enemies, the Pharisees, who made it their mission in life when he started his ministry all the way back in John chapter 2, three years prior to this, we need to shut that guy down, whoever this Jesus of Nazareth is. We need to shut him down. We need to kill him. So they're following him as well. Jesus can't shake them. And we've said earlier that the the Pharisees had a network from Dan to Beersheba all over the entire uh, land of Israel. The good old boys network. The Pharisees. So we've already seen in Luke that the Pharisees are utter enemies of Jesus. They did not uh, support his ministry at all. They didn't get baptized by John the Baptist because they didn't want to endorse anything about Jesus whatsoever. They've got one goal, one mission, to trap him, to make him look foolish, to discredit him in front of the people, uh, to get him uh, as a, shown as a lawbreaker so they might arrest him and have him executed and killed and gotten rid of. Silenced. That is their goal. That's the Pharisees. And that's how they appear 100% of the time in the Gospel of Luke from day one. So that's our background. When we, we already went through Luke 14, the end of his ministry, and it, just, it says and it happened that when he went in the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees, it happened. By the way, it doesn't say that he got invited. So one of the leaders, one of the most important Jewish leaders of the day was having a special meal. And Jesus, he may have been invited, even though it doesn't say it. It just it says in verse 1 that it happened, that he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees. So we already saw that. So he goes into this meal. It's, uh, there's, it's by invitation only. It's in a, a house. So there's a limited number. We don't know how many people. It's probably only men. It's probably only the Jewish leaders, including the Pharisees, it says, and also the scribes or the lawyers in verse 3. They had an agenda because from the day he, from the moment he walked in the threshold of the room, it says they were watching him closely like a hawk to see and watch any mistake that he might make. And then they put a plant in there. They, they probably had a seat arranged. It was probably in a U-shape, and there's probably little tables on the floor. And then they're sitting on pillows around in this U-shape, and there's the head of the home probably sitting at the very uh, center of this meal. And then they had certain seats there for honored guests and those not so honored. And Jesus was probably given a designated seat. Well, we know he was because it says after Jesus sat down right in front of where Jesus was sitting, right in front of him, wasn't uh, the, the feast of the day, but a lame man or a man who was sick, lying there, probably half dead. He was a Jew. They wouldn't have put a Gentile in the house of a Pharisee at mealtime. But he was a Jew who was lame. And we saw that he had some kind of a disease regarding his organs. Maybe he was having organ failure, internal organ failure, and so he was just bloated. And he was probably on the thresholds of death. And he's laying there in front of Jesus at the meal, So he is unclean. He's ceremonially unclean, which is ironic, which shows you what hypocrites the Pharisees are because they wouldn't let unclean Jews in their house. They wouldn't even go near unclean Jews. But they are here because he's a trap to trap Jesus because they know that Jesus does one thing when he sees people. He has compassion on them, especially the lame and the weak and the sick. And it's predictable. We'll put this trap in front of Jesus, this sick guy laying there who can't even move, on the throes of death, and we'll catch Jesus doing a miracle, healing this guy on the Sabbath. Boom, we got him. And we can have him arrested because he's a lawbreaker. He's a lawbreaker doing miracles on the Sabbath. Why did they say that? Well, that's what they believed. He's a lawbreaker because you did a miracle of healing someone on the Sabbath. That was their own law, their man-made law, the traditional law. It's not in the Bible. It wasn't in Moses' law. God never made a law and said, you can't do kindness to somebody on the Sabbath. God never said, you can't do a miracle of healing on the Sabbath. This was a man-made law. So that's what they're looking for. And we saw how Jesus did that miracle, and he just hugged that man. He hugged that man who was unclean and instantly was healed perfectly. And then Jesus dismissed him and sent him home. Go home. Go probably celebrate with your family. Enjoy the Sabbath now that you have physical rest and hopefully spiritual rest in Christ as a result of that. And then Jesus asked that penetrating uh, question where basically he said, is it lawful or unlawful to, to do good, to do kindness, to heal somebody on the Sabbath? And the Pharisees there who were trying to trap Jesus says they, they didn't say anything. They were silent. They couldn't say anything. Because it didn't matter what answer they gave, they would have been wrong. 
And then Jesus gave two parables after that. We already saw those. So already, keep in mind, Jesus is a guest at this house. He is not in charge. He's not even a guest of honor. He is utterly despised. This was an ambush. And yet Jesus does this miracle, unprecedented, that they've never seen before. Then he asks them a question that they can't answer, which may have been unprecedented, never happened before. So the one who's utterly despised and just supposed to be condemned and trapped in this setup of a dinner is now taking center stage as the one who's utterly and totally in control of the meal and the conversation. That's the Lord Jesus. He came in as a victim. He turns the tables. He's now the sovereign Lord. There's the evidence of that by the miracle that he just did, by the question that he asked that they couldn't answer, and now by these two parables that they have no answer. These two parables we already looked at, verse 7 through 11 and 12 through 14, were parables of rebuke. So he does this miracle, sends the man out, asks a question, which is rebuke to every uh, Pharisee and religious leader there, and then he gets real personal and very specific. And he attacks, what does he attack? He attacks their legalism. Their religious legalism, their scriptural religious legalism, which is the worst kind of legalism. Someone who says, I believe in the Bible, and yet at the same time, you're an utter, total hypocrite. That's what these guys were. And so these parables are directed to shatter their false religion, to utterly expose and destroy their false security in themselves and in man-made, traditional, legalistic religion. This is deliberate. Jesus is being iconoclastic here. He is smashing things that are precious to these guys. And he's doing it in this guy's own house. In his own living room. In front of us all of his own friends. How embarrassing. Well, that's what he did. Uh, The first parable that we already saw, verse 7 through 11, was to expose their pride. Because that's what legalism is. What is legalism? What is religious legalism? First and foremost, it's the main problem with religious legalism. It's it's all about pride. Pride in the Greek. High view. High elevated. You have an elevated view of yourself. You have an inflated view of yourself. You put yourself up here and you look down at others, down your nose in a condescending way. That's pride. That's religious pride. That's at the heart of every sin. Really, one thing separates people from Jesus Christ. Really, one thing keeps you out of heaven for all eternity. You know what it is if you could just summarize it all down? It's pride. It is the sin of pride that drives everything else. It feeds everything else. 1 Timothy 3 says that was the first fatal sin of Satan himself was pride. So that's these guys' problem. You can be a legalist and still be saved. So that's not their ultimate problem. Their problem is pride, and he shatters that with this direct exhortation of a parable that, you know what, you guys came in here looking for the best seats. That just revealed everything to me. You were watching me. I was watching you. And every single one of you is fighting for yourself to get the best seat in the place, the seat of honor, because you want the accolades of men and the praise of men. Because all you do is fear man. You don't fear God. You don't fear me. You don't fear the truth. That's what it said. Jesus was watching them pick out seats of honor. And he's just sitting there watching, observing. And then he designs this cater. He caters this tailor-made parable to them and their sin. To expose them. That their problem was pride. You had an elevated view of yourself. You need to lower your view. That's what humility is. You know what that means? It means low. A, A low view of yourself. Primarily a low view before God. God is up here and we are down here. We are inferior to God. We are in awe of God. We fear God. We are disgusted with ourselves in light of God and his glory and his greatness. That's humility. These Pharisees, they didn't have that. So he just shatters that. You guys, you're just all about exalting yourself. It's obvious the way you fight for seats of honor here when you came into the place in the first place. And just so you know, the one who exalts himself, will be humbled, and that is by God. You exalt yourself in this life, you're going to pay the consequences in the next life before God the judge. You exalt yourself, it's all about you, self-serving in this life. God will take you down. He'll take you down in the next life. He will humble you. 
He will humble you to the point, and he says, uh, those who humble themselves, they will be exalted. They will be, and he's talking about salvation there. Someone who lives by pride in their own ego and all self-centeredness with utter disregard for the truth of God in this life, living by their own agenda, that's somebody who is living in accordance with their own pride. And it's completely contrary to what the calling of a Christian is. And there will be a judgment someday if they don't turn, repent, and turn from that. And that is when they die and stand before Jesus Christ as the judge, they will be condemned. They will be condemned and consigned to hell forever. That's what he means by being humbled. So this was a a clear and utter rebuke to them. They're a little slow in their thinking. First of all, they're going through a whirlwind of emotions here, these Pharisees, because they only have, they're so myopic and they got one thing on mind. They were planning this thing before Jesus entered. You could just imagine after they met for synagogue or who knows how long this plan was going. They're all commiserating together. Okay, yeah, that Jesus guy from Nazareth, yeah, he's, he's coming over, uh, sun, uh, sun up about mid-sky, you know, 1.30 in the afternoon. Uh, and this is what we'll do. And here's the seating arrangement. And did you get that guy, the dropsy guy? Yeah, the disgusting. Did you? Oh, don't touch me. Okay, you got, you got him placed right in front of Jesus' seat. Okay, so they're, they're planning this. This is strategic. That is their mind. They are myopic, one-dimensional. That's all they're thinking. And we got him. Then all of a sudden, there's a miracle that they've never seen before in their life that they can't give account for. Then Jesus asks this direct question, rhetorical question, that they can't even answer. And they're they're totally paralyzed, so they can't say anything because they'll look like fools. Imagine now begins the roller coaster of emotions that these guys are going through during this meal. They have already lost their appetite. They're probably not eating anything. And this roller coaster of emotions is going to continue with every word that Jesus speaks. He gives three parables. Every single one of them cuts to the heart. So that first one, 7 through 11, then he gives another parable. And this one is, so the first parable was directed to the guys who came in, the guests, as they're all fighting for position, jockeying for, for, uh, for uh, positions of honor. So then Jesus directs the next parable, verses 12 through 14, to the guy who threw the banquet or the dinner. And it's a rebuke. It's a rebuke. We already went over it. It's self-explanatory, pretty much. Here's what you did. Here's the people you you invited all your friends that were prestigious, and your motive was you invited them so that you could get something in return from them. That's why you invited these rich guys and influential guys and guys of honor and power because you want them to scratch your back. That's why you had this dinner. That's why they're here. You're just driven by self-serving attitudes. That's what Jesus said in the parable. And then he, he talks, as he gives parables, he talks about earthly things that are universally true that everybody can grasp. A wedding feast, yeah, everybody gets that. And then this one, a dinner, oh yeah, everybody understands a dinner. But he always takes that parable down here that everybody understands universally, and then he elevates it with the, the exclamation point at the end of his parable is always elevating that universally understood earthly truth, and he elevates it to a higher level, level to make one poignant spiritual truth that hopefully they can latch their minds on, because spiritual truth doesn't come naturally. Did you know that we can't understand one spiritual truth without the help of God? That's 1 Corinthians 2. Because an unbeliever doesn't have the mind of Christ. He doesn't have the Spirit of God living in him. Unbelievers can't understand spiritual truth. They can't discern it. Spiritual truth is spiritually appraised. That means with the help of the Spirit of God. And we as Christians, we quote at the end of verse Uh, chapter 2 in 1 Corinthians, it says, we have the mind of Christ. That's how we can understand spiritual truth. So we can't understand spiritual truth without the aid and the help of Jesus himself, his Holy Spirit, and God Almighty as he enables us. And that's what's going on here. These guys aren't spiritual. They don't get it. They're rockheads. They're dull in their understanding, especially about spiritual truths. Their thinking is all twisted and warped. 180 degrees, it's all about them and it's all about earthly matters. They're not thinking on a higher level of spiritual truth of what matters to God. That's why he's doing those parables. And then he gives the parable and then he just gives a succinct little interpretation. Not much. But he said the first, uh, this uh, parable given to the host of this dinner, verses 12 to 14, he's talking about the next time you have a, a dinner... Do it this way. Okay, that's fine. Or to lunch. And here's why. Here's what you're doing, which is wrong. Here's the way you should do it. And here's why I'm telling the story. It's because it's, it's not about now, verse 14. It's all about the resurrection. 
It's all about the resurrection of the righteous. Verse 14, and you will be blessed. If you do it the right way, if you live in obedience to God, if your, your soul resonates with God's soul in keeping with his truth, and you are a true believer, then there will be true reward for you someday. Not from some finite, fallen, sinful Pharisee who can reward you and scratch your back. In this life, you'll get a reward from God Almighty for having proper faith. And as a result, living the right way in obedience, honoring God, loving people. Having a dinner like this, and you'll be rewarded in the next life. With what? The resurrection of the righteous. You will be repaid. That's what he said. Now, all the Pharisees and the scribes and sitting around, did they believe in resurrection? Like I said, this is the, the doctrine of the resurrection was given by God directly to humanity. No human being in the history of earth ever conceived of ultimate bodily resurrection. That is divine truth revealed by God. It's unique to Old Testament religion from God, and it's unique to Christianity. That's why the very intelligent, highly educated Greeks in Acts 17 who were talking with Paul, and they they had exposure to the world because they lived in the hub of the world. And when Paul started talking about resurrection, they're like, what? What are you talking about? And they said, what is this new doctrine? They'd never heard of it. Because it's not common sense. You can't think of it. You can't imagine it. You can't conjure it up on your own as a human. This is divine, unique, true revelation about what happens to us in the future. The resurrection. And the Pharisees, they believed in resurrection. They knew it. It was in the Old Testament. It's in the Bible. It's in the book of Daniel explicitly. The last chapter. It's in the book of Job, the oldest book in the Old Testament. It's in Psalm 16, explicitly. Resurrection. It's at the end of the book of Isaiah. It's all over the place. So they believed in resurrection. They looked forward to resurrection. To be resurrected in a physical body so they could enjoy the lavish feast in the presence of God at his banquet. This was their worldview about the future. And so Jesus said, boy, if you live like this, verse 14, then you will be blessed... Mr. Host of the lunch today, conditioned upon you doing it the right way, but you're not. Remember, this is a rebuke. You will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So Jesus actually just rebuked the host of the lunch in front of everybody and all of his friends. And apparently, one of his buddies got it. And one of his buddies wasn't going to put up with it. One of his buddies uh, wasn't going to stand for it. Who knows what he was thinking? Could be that, well, who's this Jesus of Nazareth guy I think he is? This isn't his lunch. He's not a Pharisee. He's not one of us. And what in the world is he doing taking over, uh, giving lessons here at this lunch? This isn't his house. He's not in control of the itinerary. And the things he's talking about, what, what is that all about? Other than the fact that I think he just insulted the host of this lunch. On the one hand, Jesus insulted and rebuked and exposed the host of this lunch. But at the same time, Jesus was speaking Old Testament truth that all these Pharisees and Sadducees or lawyers, they agreed with it. They agreed with, yes, there will be a resurrection. But you know what they thought? They thought they were in by virtue of the fact that they were just born Jewish. That's literally what they believed. They had Jewish blood. They are sons of Abraham. They even said that to Jesus in John chapter 8. We are of Abraham. We have the blood of Abraham. We are sons of God, sons of Yahweh, uh, children of the covenant. We are in. Guaranteed. That was their understanding. They're standing before God. So they were completely, it was based on uh, humanity, genetics, DNA, bloodline. And as a result, they were completely, totally self-secure Falsely so, and they were completely prejudiced to anybody who wasn't a Jew. Completely prejudiced. They were racist, you could say. So, Jesus speaks truth, which some of which they can agree with, but I can't take the insult, and that's why the response in verse 15. Uh, when one of those who were reclining at the table with him, one of those, not the host... Listening to these parables of rebuke, when one of those who were reclining at the table with uh, Jesus heard this, he said to Jesus, well, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Here, here, it's like he wanted to make a toast in the middle of the awkward moment. 
So he's agreeing with the fact that, yes, there is a banquet. Yes, there's a resurrection. And by the way, we're all going to be a part of it. And that's why he's saying, amen. We will be there. So he's trying to overturn Jesus' argument and rebuke and warning. When Jesus is basically saying, by the way, in chapter 13, Jesus already told the Pharisees, you're out. You're done. God has abandoned you. That was the end of chapter 13. Your house is forsaken. God has already judged you. God's already slammed the gavel and put his verdict down on these people. This guy doesn't get it. Blessed is everyone who... So this is a distraction. So Jesus knows they don't get it. Wow. I just gave two rebukes, and you're trying to tell me that you're still going into the kingdom of God? You deserve to be in the kingdom of God? Really? And you're probably so arrogant that uh, you think the way all Pharisees and scribes think, and that's even some Jews aren't getting into the kingdom like you are, because after all, women are not as important as men. And then, of course, any Jew who's ceremonially unclean or a tax gatherer who's a traitor, they're not getting into the kingdom of God. And there's a man that just had dropsy who was sick and unclean. Certainly, he's probably in the gutter and on the low Wrong of the spectrum, according to this guy, of who gets into heaven as far as Jews. And so in, in light of that, to just give it one fell swoop of a wrecking ball to just shatter their false religion, to shatter their pride, to expose their wicked hearts, Jesus gives one last parable. And that's verse 16 through 24. So in response, Jesus says this. So that guy makes the response, his toast, hear, hear. A toast, and Jesus said, but, so Jesus doesn't accept this guy's toast. But Jesus said to him, that guy, so Jesus is going to start talking to this guy, so he's probably looking at him personally, or maybe he was next to him, and he's using the opportunity to talk to this guy, to respond to this guy, but actually his audience is every person in that room. And a good teacher will do that. A good parent will do that. Verse 16, he's talking to this one guy, but verse 24, he uses the word you, for I tell you at the end of the parable, and that's plural. So he's talking to this guy, but he actually, he, he applies it to everybody there. So here's the parable. Listen to the parable. Uh, he said to, what's a parable? A story. <clears throat> A story, a fictitious story. I'm, I'm trying to constrain, constrain myself uh, from talking about parables because they, when you just start thinking about a par- parables, I'm convinced, because I've done this, are those places in the Gospels, when you get to it, you usually just rush through it in your Bible reading. Ah, let's get past the parable. Or it's too hard to figure out. Ah, too many details. Too many incidental details. Ah, it's not spiritual. Ah, it's not doctrine. Ah, give me Romans chapter 5 or whatever. They're so simple. And we just whoosh, rush through them. Parable. The, the thing that's so amazing about parables when you think about it is, so we would all agree, if you're a Christian and you're familiar with the Bible, we would all agree that who was the greatest Bible teacher ever? Jesus. Who was the greatest teacher ever? Jesus. He was the master rabbi. So I just want to challenge you on the parables when you come to the parables. Take them seriously. Slow down and have the proper hermeneutics of parables. People mess them up all the time. I, I was picking up commentaries this week and they're coming up with wrong interpretations on the parable. That's not the point. Parables. Why was Jesus such a great teacher? Why was the master teacher? Why was the greatest teacher in the history of the world? One of the reasons is because one of his favorite teaching methods and literary devices was a parable. And that is profound to think about. Where in the world did Jesus inherit this model and idea of teaching spiritual truth through parables. It's not in the Old Testament. Think of some of the greatest teachers in the Old Testament. The teacher himself in Ecclesiastes. There there aren't parables like this. The Pharisees didn't teach in parables like this. The Sadducees, the synagogues, the schools, they didn't teach like this. Think about it afterwards when the church started, the Apostle Paul, Peter, and the Apostles, they didn't use parables. They didn't do this. This is unique to Jesus, at least his kind of parables, and it was one of his favorite mechanisms of teaching if you read the four Gospels. Luke has 23. Luke includes 23 of Jesus' parables. 23! I don't know if you've been paying attention. We are now on chapter 14 
of Luke. And so far, we have gone through 12 parables of Jesus. Are you aware of that? Had I asked anybody, how many parables have we gone through? Few of us would have said, oh, we've, we've been through 12. So we've got to pay attention. There's more coming in Luke, too. They are profound. Jesus got this technique from no one. By the way, and they're fictitious in terms of, they're just little stories. And every time Jesus, or many times Jesus tells a parable, uh, it's not like he was planning on it. Like in Luke chapter 4, when they handed him, okay, you are the rabbi designated teacher of the day. Here is the scroll and the reading of the day. And they hand him the scroll and it's Isaiah 61. And he's reading what is designated and planned for the day. He knew it. That's the calendar. He could prepare his notes and study and whatever else and meditate on it. Not When he's telling parables, that's usually not the case. There's some spontaneous, unexpected, uh, crazy incident, usually where he's being challenged and people are trying to publicly shame him. And on the spot, he comes up with a parable that is perfect to the situation. Every detail about it. And it ultimately always serves its purpose. And usually the hearers, they have no response. They have no retort. They have no comeback. They're usually silenced. Half the time, they don't even understand what he's saying. Sometimes he interprets it for them. Like here. And sometimes he doesn't interpret it as a sign of judgment, as in Matthew 13. The parable. And what was it? It was just a little story. Parable, two words. Para... Bole, to throw down, to cast down, to lay down, para, alongside of, like, a, like parallel lines side by side. That's a parable. It's, it's when you lay down or cast down an idea or something very concrete and figurative of an illustration. You lay it down, and then you compare it next to a higher spiritual truth. So they're side by side. So it's the easier thing to understand laid down, so you can explain the more complicated, higher level thinking of a spiritual truth, side by side. What is a parable? It's a comparison. It's comparing two things. And it's comparing the sameness of those two things, not the differences. So that a a child could understand a parable at face value in terms of what's going on there. Oh, a wedding feast. I've been to one of those. I've heard about those. Or a dinner. Oh, yeah, we go to dinner. Look at the birds of the air. And on and on it goes. So it's a, a comparison side by side, and that's what this is here. So here it is. And this was, uh, so he uses the, the context of a story they're all familiar with and look forward to at the end of the age and even in their lifetime. By the way, Matthew 23 says this, Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees and he's calling them all kinds of names. He is publicly calling the, the Jewish leaders names and they are not nice names. Seven times he says, woe to you, hypocrites. Ouch. Blind guides. Fools. You are of the devil. This is public. And in one of those seven woes, publicly excoriating the Pharisees on their home turf, in Jerusalem, near the temple, in front of the people, during a feast week. One of the things that he excoriates them for is he says this, he warns the people, first he's talking to the people, he says, okay, all you disciples out there, all you hundreds and thousands of people listening to me, to me, in ear range, here during the feast, beware of the Pharisees. Yes, these guys up here, dressed up, all fancy, right here with the things on their forehead and the things on their arms, the ones that try to intimidate and scare you. Beware of them. Yeah, the ones that run the temple. Yes, the ones that run the synagogue. Beware of them. That's how it was going. Why? Well, because they quote from the law of Moses, but they don't do it. They're hypocrites. They say one thing and do another. Beware, these guys right here. They were in close proximity to Jesus. That's how it was going. Boy, that's awkward. Boy, that's uncomfortable. Boy, that's probably getting heated. And then one of the phrases in there, after he's calling them all these names, you hypocrites, you hypocrites, he says, and by the way, you, you've, and then he turns to the Pharisees, and you love the banquets. You love being invited to the banquets, and you love the honored places at the banquet. You just love banquets. Why? Because banquets were elitist social events, the highest pinnacle of social life 
amidst the average Jewish person who just lived a boring, mundane, agricultural life. Six days a week, 12 hours a day. And you were so exhausted, you just want to stay at home on Sabbath. And yet the Pharisees, the elitist lawyers and scribes, Jewish leaders, they, they had banquets. They threw banquets. They planned banquets. They invited each other to banquets. Maybe they got invited occasionally to a very rare elitist banquet by some governor or ruler locally. And they were proud of that. And that was a badge of honor. And they would brag about it. They would look forward to it. Okay, well, we'll take one of these things that you thoroughly enjoy and can relate to. Pharisees, the banquet. So he does. Verse 16. Jesus said to the man, um, so here's my parable, here's my story. A man was giving a big dinner. Big is mega. It's, uh, the better translation is great. A great banquet. That's what the ESV says in the NIV. They get it right. Big dinner, no, that's not good enough. Big dinner, that's what you have at Thanksgiving. That's not what this is talking about. This is grand banquet. Huge banquet. Massive Banquet. Like, uh, think Esther chapter 1 banquet. So ESV gets it right. A great banquet. It's not a dinner. We know that because he says, and there were many invited. Many. So key word there. Mega and many. This is huge. You've got to plan for this. This is long term. This is formal. This is by invitation only. Uh, he said a man was giving a big dinner and he invited many past tense. He had invited many. He had, he had already invited them. You know what that means? That means he sent out, get this. He sent out, whether it was verbal or written or by proclamation, this guy that was having this huge, massive, incomparable banquet, he sent out a save the date. That's literally what it is. Because of the way they planned it. He couldn't, you couldn't give the details. You couldn't lock it in until the day uh, occasioned and was... Before, so there had to be two invitations, really. So this is the save the date. Apparently, everybody agreed. Nobody wrote back and said, I can't go. They weren't given excuses then. Oh, grand banquet. This is fantastic. They probably hung it on their refrigerator and were all proud. Maybe had it coated with plastic and put it out in the front yard for everybody to see. I'm invited to the banquet. How about yourself? So they get the save the date. And many were invited to this huge, massive, by a master. Someone with authority, someone with money, someone with prestige, honor, somebody you would want to align yourself with. Save the date, verse 17. And at the dinner, at the dinner hour, okay, what's this? Well, time goes by and now you've got the actual invitation with all the details. So there was the save the date. Everybody seemed to be able to go. Now all of a sudden, the actual invitation goes out. Those of you involved in wedding planning, you can relate to this. You send out the save the date to 300 people and you think everybody's going to come. Am I going to have enough room? Then what happens? Oops. They're not coming. They said they can't come. They said they can't come. They said they can't come. And this is all before the wedding. And then on the wedding day, there's even more people who said they could come who don't come. Well, anyway, uh, all these people are invited to this coveted banquet. And at the dinner hour, uh, the master, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited to lock it in. Here's the details. Come, for everything is ready now. Let's celebrate. Verse 18 is a big but, but they all alike. Every single invited guest, and who was that? That was many. But they all alike began to make excuses, every single one of them. So you can imagine the Pharisees sitting there and the scribes saying, well, that's stupid, that's absurd, of course we would all go. No one would do this. You don't turn this down, especially at the last minute. That is against etiquette and protocol. That is rude. That is completely insulting. And after all, why would you not want to go? This is what we look forward to in life. This is what the Pharisees lived for. So this is utterly absurd. So here, once again, is Jesus giving a parable that comes across as completely absurd, foolish, and totally exaggerated at face value. Because it is. That's his point. And their attitude is, well, that's, this is unheard of. This wouldn't happen. This isn't even realistic. Who is this Jesus guy? I thought he was supposed to be a good teacher. This is a lousy illustration. Nobody would believe this. But they all alike began making excuses. And here he gives three excuses, examples. Somebody said, the first one said to him, well, I have bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. 
Please consider me excused. What a stupid, superficial, shallow mistake. I've just got land. It's not a house. It's not people. It's not slaves. It's not a farm. It's just a piece of dead land. Save it for next week. Point, this is a lame excuse. Point, this guy's preoccupied, obviously, by materialism, probably. He has the wrong priorities, but he's not going. Please consider me excused. Uh, Another excuse, verse 19. Another one said, well, I bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. So this this guy's wealthy because he's got oxen. He's purchased them. And if you examine his excuse, it's pretty lame and superficial as well. I just want to go try them out. It's not like I have to do the farm on Tuesday before the rain sets in. It's, oh, I want to go try them out. I've already bought them. He's already tried them out. This guy is preoccupied with the circumstances of life and his own agenda, his own personal agenda. His personal agenda is more important than the master. That's obvious. And then there's a third excuse, which may be most realistic of all. Verse 20, another one said, well, I've married a wife. My circumstances have changed. Now I'm now married. I'm obligated. And I cannot go because my wife isn't going to let me. My wife is in charge. You can just, those of you who have seen Fiddler on the Roof, you can just hear Golda saying to Tevya, she slams her sandal on the table, we're not going! And Tevya says, okay. Well, this was stupid and foolish too because the Pharisees, they saw women as inferior. A, a woman and a wife didn't tell a Pharisee what to do. We know for a fact from history that a Pharisee, how he prayed every day, is he thanked God that he wasn't a Gentile or a woman. That's how a Pharisee prayed. So these are three utterly foolish, ridiculous, shallow, unrealistic excuses. And no one is going to this massive banquet. So you can imagine these guys, they're all jovial. They're probably full of all kinds of jocularity and talking about how absurd the story is and oh, how dumb. And these people, they don't even deserve to go to the banquet anyway if they're that shallow. Who knows what they're thinking? And then Jesus goes on, verse 21. And the slave came back and reported to his master who was hosting the banquet. And the head of the household became angry. He was indignant because nobody was coming and they had lame excuses. Now the Pharisees could relate to that. He deserved to be angry. This was righteous indignation. The master should be angry. But this guy who was hosting this lunch probably had his own banquets that he threw and hosted. And he's probably even experienced this. Somebody comes from a lame excuse. Yeah, I was angry. That's something that they could resonate with. Slave came back, reported to the master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Wow, this is getting more ridiculous as the story goes. For the Pharisees, anyway. You don't just spontaneously, last minute, invite people who weren't invited in the first place. And for sure you don't pick the riffraff of society, the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. From a Jewish point of view, those people are unclean and shouldn't be around them. They're ceremonially unclean. You shouldn't be eating dinner in proximity with them. This is absurd. Nobody does this, Jesus. Then it gets more absurd. Verse 22, and the slave said, well, master, uh, I invited all the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And even when they came, master, what you commanded has been done. And still, there's still more room to fill in the seats of the many who decided not to come. We have more room. We don't want food to go to waste. We don't want the blessing to go to waste. So the master makes another decision, verse 23, and the master said to the slave, oh, okay, then go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel those people to come in so that my house may be filled. This is a totally different group of people than the first group of the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. These people are out on the outskirts of society, out of the city. Uh, he says specifically in the highways. This is like people in the alleys and the scary places by the brothels. In the bushes, in the hedges, in the ditch, in the rocks of the mountains, the scary people, the homeless guy under the tree, under the freeway. That's who this is. Now this this story is really getting out of hand. But that's who he said to invite. And then verse 24. Well, that's the end of the parable. And then Jesus turns it all. He turns his cannons on them with the grand crescendo and the punchline and the explanation and the application of this parable. 
which we'll talk about next week. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this the day, the Lord's day. Always such a, a refreshing, glorious blessing from you. We need to be reminded of that, God, that um, it's better than being at a, a banquet on this earth is to be with God's people, to be with God's people uh, as a group, corporately in fellowship, encouraging one another, stimulating one another to love and good deeds, singing with God's people in worship of you, knowing that your presence is with us individually through your Holy Spirit, but also your corporate presence, as you promised, to be with your people collectively as well. And we get to experience that, rejoice in that, bask in that, to sit together around the truth of your word and allow you to be our teacher through the Holy Spirit, enlighten our understanding to the words that we've read and heard this morning, help us with your Holy Spirit to meditate on these things, not forget these things, as we get to see graphically a portrait of who Jesus Christ is, what he was truly like when he was on the earth, the soul-penetrating truth that he spoke every time he opened his mouth as he was led by you. And we get to feed our souls with that same truth because it is the word of God. Father, what a blessing. We thank you for that. God, we thank you for this day. We pray for your ongoing blessing as you go before us and lead us. And we just trust and pray that our worship is pleasing to you because you deserve it. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.